We began appropriately enough this morning by proclaiming that God is not good. He is so good. There's no way to really express how great and good our God is. But one day, as Brother Danny pointed out in quoting that beautiful song, and I agree it's a beautiful one that we've been able to communicate with one another over the last couple of weeks, We'll be able to sing that God is so good, and we'll understand that in a way that is broader and deeper than we've ever understood it before. And while we are here on this earth, living this life, let us do good deeds, as we have also sung about. And we're glad that you're here this morning, that you care about doing good for the cause of Jesus Christ and for the kingdom that you and I are privileged to be a part of. Invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 10, where we're going to begin our study in just a moment. We're going to be in probably about a dozen different passages, mostly in the New Testament, though we'll go back and explore some Old Testament passages as well. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a number of our members who are absent from us today, and we're glad that they're able to be on vacation or to be with family or to maybe have some opportunities to see some friends that they haven't seen in some time. But we are privileged to have a number of visitors with us, and we're glad that you've chosen to be with us. As Brother Ken pointed out at the outset, you are indeed our honored guest. We have a group of young people here, and I'll let you determine if you're in the young people group or not. But I'm talking about those who are really young, those who are in grade school or maybe even a little bit younger. And because of good teachers in the Bible classes and because of good parenting, they know some of the very basics better than some adults about what it takes to become a Christian and what it means to be a Christian and what it requires to be a faithful child of God. And I remember as a very young boy, a long, long time ago in the Stone Ages, that we learned about basics, about books of the Bible, and we learned about songs that taught us about the apostles and things about the steps of salvation and things that were necessary in order to be a faithful child of God. And we oftentimes talked about those five or six steps to salvation, right, that a person needs to hear and believe and repent and confess and be baptized and then remain faithful unto death. Those are all things that are basics that we all agree. And while we ought not just quote those five or six steps and think that it's that simple, and that goes to the premise of the study together today, I think it's important that we are able to memorize those things and be able to communicate what those things mean. If I were to give you all a blank sheet of paper and I were to ask you, given those five or six steps that we are familiar with as outlined the scripture, and I were to ask you, what do you believe is the most difficult aspect of obedience? Or another way of putting it, what's the most difficult step in salvation process? Is it hearing? Is it believing? Is it repenting? Is it confessing Jesus? Is it being baptized or is it living faithful? We may have a lot of different answers, but my suspicion would be that a great number of you, especially those of us who have been Christians for more than just a few weeks or a few months, we've been doing this for a number of years, that being faithful, remaining faithful is sometimes hard to do. But let me also suggest to you that one of the most difficult aspects, it seems to me, and as is taught in scripture, and as we look 
look at in our study together today is the idea of making sure that we make appropriate changes in our service to God. Because hearing is a relatively easy thing, though it requires effort to hear. I'm not suggesting that it doesn't. And being baptized is a big choice, and it's a big thing to do. And I'm not trying to subject it to being less meaningful. What I am proposing this morning is that repenting is sometimes hard. Because really, real repentance, and that's a lot of R's, and we're going to look at a lot of R's together today, is a subject that is tough for us. Because it's easy for me to say, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to live for God. And then a week or two later, I get tempted with something that tempts me, whether it be something that I would watch or something that I would think or something that I might say in the workplace. And sometimes real, real repentance is a challenge for us. So I want to talk about repentance today in a very broad way. But look at some aspects of what really real repentance looks like. I think it's always important to understand the frequency with which certain terms are used in the Bible because it lays kind of the foundation or the groundwork for what we're talking about. And the concept of repentance or repenting is mentioned some 25 times in the New Testament. It actually is a combination of two original words that come from the Greek. Of course, we're familiar with the fact that the New Testament comes from the Greek. The first is this word meta, which is the idea of making some sort of a change. And then you add to that the concept of thinking or one's mind, one's mindset. So we're changing our mind and then changing our actions accordingly. So for a person that has been uh, uh, involved in sin X, whatever that may be, he or she says, I'm no longer going to think that way. I'm going to change my mind about the way that I process this particular temptation or this particular sin. And I'm going to make those changes knowing that it's required in order to be faithful to my God. But there's a danger, and the danger is simply this at the outset. That if we're not careful, we'll repent of our sins without really repenting. And you might say, well, then you're not repenting. And I, I get the point. And you understand hopefully my point as well. That we've got to be individuals who understand that there are some steps to repentance that is more than just saying, I repent. When I go to God in private prayer and I say, I repent of my sins, it's got to be that we have a thought process that I'm going to really make changes for the better. And I'd like to suggest that there might be more than five steps to uh, repentance, but there are five key ones that I think we've got to make sure that we remember in our private prayer, in our public teaching, in every aspect of what we do in service to our God. And the first of those is recognition. The first of those is recognition. One of the greatest problems for those of us who are human beings, and that's who I'm talking to today, is the idea of I'm, I know I've done wrong and I admit I've done wrong. Saying I am sorry 
is one of the three hardest words to say sometimes. Perhaps maybe it's more difficult for men than women. Some would suggest that that's the case. But all of us as humans, whether we are male or female, sometimes struggle to take responsibility for the things that we've done wrong. Whether that be in our relationships with others as brothers and sisters in Christ, or those who are in the world that we may have offended, or certainly in our relationship with God. Being able to go to God and say, God, I know I've done wrong. I've made some mistakes. I, I, I wasn't thinking correctly. I wasn't thinking spiritually. I wasn't thinking with a godly way of thought process. And I admit that I am wrong. And knowing about God and the need to obey him comes from knowledge in the first place. And that brings us to Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. Romans chapter 10 is one of those passages, especially, uh, for example, verse 14 or verse 17, that are quickly memorized by those who are young students of the Bible. But I want to go back and read verses 13 and 14, where it says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, you know, as good Bible students and as members of the Lord's church, that that verse is sometimes taken all by itself and that individuals will teach false doctrine just based off of 13. The idea is, is all I have to do is believe that's what it says here and I'll be saved. But we know that there's more to it than that as we outlined at the outset of our study together this morning. How shall then they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And I would submit to you that the idea of a preacher here is more than just someone who stands in a pulpit, though it includes that person. All of us have the responsibility of being preachers of good to others, and of sharing with them the message of what it means to be a child of God, including recognizing that I've done wrong. And the only way to have recognition is to have knowledge of God's word. In fact, we could go and read countless passages in the book of Romans, for example, that talk about the knowledge of the law that then presents the importance of knowing that we've done wrong and the need to do right. There's another passage that came to mind as I was thinking about this that is probably familiar to many of you, especially if you are, 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 have ever preached or uh, in, a, in a public setting such as this. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And there's so much that we could say about 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. There's an incorrect way to deal with God's word. We know that there are individuals in the world who will take this book and abuse it. They'll cut it up. They'll paste different parts in different areas. And they'll make it say something that it was never intended to say in the first place. Let me suggest to you that admission of sin or acknowledgement of sin and recognition of sin all go together. To understand this, I want to look at a, a story that always has bothered me, and I'm sure it has bothered you, and that's the, the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan and all the things that surrounded those ugly hours in the life of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we will not read all 12 of those verses but verse 12 ends by saying, you did it secretly, 
But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. Now, this is, of course, Nathan and David having this very difficult conversation. This is where Nathan says in the King James Version uh, rendering, he says, thou art the man that I've been talking about this whole time, the man who's done this horrible deed and you need to repent of it. Then in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. If you want to underline something in your Bible, underline the phrase, I have sinned against the Lord, because that's the first step, it seems to me, of real, real repentance. I have sinned. I've made a mistake. I'm, I'm sorry. And I'm going to, secondly, take responsibility for what I've done wrong, which leads me to step number two, and that is taking responsibility. You know, the failure to take responsibility for a person's actions is as old as the earth itself. And we see it all around us on a daily basis. We see it on TV. We see it in our workplaces where someone says, well, it wasn't my responsibility, or even if it was clearly your responsibility, no, I didn't do it. If you did wrong, you have to take responsibility for it. And that's a very difficult thing. And that's a tough lesson for all of us as, as young children to learn and even as older adults to appreciate. Well, I say that it's as old as the earth because, of course, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4, we see a failure to take responsibility after sin had transpired. In chapter 3, in verse 12, we find that the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree of the fruit and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what about you? What is this you have done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And I've always wondered, Adam says it's her fault. She says it's the serpent's fault. And the serpent kind of looks around and says, I've got no one else to blame except myself. Well, after all, serpents don't have fingers with which to point blame, right? And so we've got to appreciate that this idea of saying, it's not my fault, I didn't do it, I'm not responsible. You know, we've got to be the individuals who say, I was wrong and I am sorry. More about that in just a moment. And then while you're there in Genesis chapter 3, just a page over in chapter 4 and verse 9, the Lord says to Cain, and of course you're familiar with what happened with Cain and Abel after he killed him in verse 8. He says, where is Abel your brother? He says, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? I've always wondered about the tone of that statement, of that question. Am I my brother's keeper? I may have shared with you uh, at some point in the past that I tried that line once uh, when uh, after Bible class, my father asked me, he says, where's your brother Larry? And I said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Never did that again after that. <laughs> Once and only for that. But, you know, here in verse 10, he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Note the absence, whether it be Adam or whether it be Eve or whether it be Cain. I have sinned. That would have not erased all the problems, but that would have been a, a sure good place to start. God would have dealt with them, it seems to me, in different fashion and certainly would have been more gracious potentially if they just simply said, I've sinned, I've done wrong, I'm sorry. 
Take responsibility for the things that you've done. And the failure to take responsibility for sin makes us out to be liars while also accusing God of lying as well. As Bruce taught us just a couple of years ago or 18 months ago from 1 John chapter 1, that's one of the points that stuck out to me that I I thought fit very well with this idea. When we've done wrong, we've got to admit we've done wrong because otherwise we are lying to ourselves, lying to others, and attempting to make God a liar as well. Which brings us to a third step in repentance. So I've got to recognize I've done wrong. I've got to take responsibility and admit that I've done wrong. And thirdly, I need to have remorse for what I have done. Given that sin is bad, is ugly, is disgusting, is horrific in every nature, we should have a very strong reaction to it. Go back to the Old Testament book of Ezra. This is one of my favorite illustrations of this particular point uh, in Ezra chapter 9 and beginning in about verse 1. It says in verse 1, That when these things were done, the leaders came to me. This is Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. And we'll read four or five verses here real quickly here. He says, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of all the foreign nations. Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. For they have taken, now here's the sin, verse 2. Here's the problem. Verse 2, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of these lands. And indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. That word trespass there, verse 2, is unfaithfulness or sin or wickedness. So when I heard this thing, if you want to circle the word thing and just write out to the side sin. So when I heard about the sin, Ezra says, this is how I reacted. I tore my garment, tore my robe, plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. He's doing things that were culturally understood some 2,000 plus years ago that this is a sign that you are really upset. And he says in verse 4, everyone trembled at the words of the God of, uh, of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression, there's the word again, of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. What are they doing here? They are showing remorse after they have recognized and take responsibility. And for our iniquities, and he says, we are individuals who are now of a humiliation as it is this day. We have done wrong. We recognize it. We take responsibility for it. And we have remorse for it. Time fails us to go to 2 Corinthians, for example, where it talks about the difference between earthly sorrow or human sorrow and God-based godly sorrow. There's a sorry that I got caught that sometimes we participate in and that we are guilty of. And then there's a, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong, regardless of whether anyone knows about it in the first place, because my Lord knows all things. The fact is, is sin needs to be seen as serious. Serious, and we should be sorrowful for our actions. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6, a passage that I think is, is important and maybe one worthy of memorization. 
It says in verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Here's the word repentance in verse 6 of chapter 6 in Hebrews. Since they crucify again for, their, for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. We sometimes sing the song, I was not there when they crucified my Lord. But I was the one who shouted crucify, even though I didn't shout crucify. The point being that our actions, our choices, our sins are what put Jesus on a cross along with the incredible love and grace of our God. And again, time fails us to really go back and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But I encourage you to read those verses where it talks about the importance of godly sorrow as compared with human sorrow. So we must recognize sin, take responsibility for sin, have remorse for our sin, and then we must do what is necessary in order to repair it. Now, sometimes repairing is a very difficult thing, especially if other people have been involved or if individuals have been harmed. But when it comes to sin, we must remember this very important truth, and that is this. There is always a cost to sin. Even private sin that no one else knows about, you are harmed and the Lord is offended. Anytime we do wrong, and I, as I often say when I preach sermons like this, I'm not just preaching to you. It's, it's an opportunity for me to reflect on areas where I've got to work at as well. But there is always a cost to our sin. Sin always hurts someone. And this sometimes means that there'll be a need to uh, repair. And you say, well, I I can't repair everything. And I understand sometimes when we do wrong, uh, think about the most extreme example. When you take someone's life, which we all agree is wrong, you can repent of that sin and God will forgive you of that sin, but you can't repair everything. You can't undo the damage you've done. More on that in just a moment. But I wanted to share with you four aspects of repair real quickly here. Number one, sometimes we have to repair things with those who we have offended or with those who have offended us. Many times there is sin against a brother. And this has to be dealt with quickly and directly. I want to go back to Matthew chapter 18. I have a whole sermon just on Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17 that I've preached before, but and maybe I'll preach it at some point again. But it says, "If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother." And so the whole idea here is making peace as quickly as possible. And there's something to be said for the quickness of this and not dragging it on and not allowing it to fester because sometimes we as human beings struggle in our relationships with one another. And I'd like for it to be said that once we become baptized believers, that once we're Christians, there are never any difficulties that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's not the case because sometimes we do. And those things need to be dealt with as appropriately and as, out, and as outlined in the passages here and elsewhere. Let me suggest to you that secondly, we need to repair maybe our personal reputation. Note if you would, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7. There's a passage there that came to mind where it says, Moreover, talking about an elder, and I understand we're talking about an overseer, someone who is a bishop, someone who's a pastor. 
He says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among all those who are outside unless he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, while this is exclusively, not exclusively, talking about uh, the work and the qualifications or the qualities of those who are going to shepherd a local church, it seems to me that we should all aspire for having a good name, which is better than precious ointment, Solomon says in the book of Proverbs. And remember that a good reputation is hard to come by and easy to lose. Reminds me of a situation, you know, when, when you're younger, even as a preacher, sometimes you say some things that you ought not. I'll share this story with, with you. Um, I was in my first week or two at a new work in Southern California, and I was meeting the members, and you know, and I was just being my usual self, where if you say a name, I might think of someone else that's famous or infamous, and uh, ask if you're related, and uh, uh, probably not the wisest thing to do. And I learned my lesson. Now, stay away from that kind of thing. But anyway, hi, I'm brother, and and this is my wife's sister, Dillinger. I'm from Indiana. And I said, oh, are you related to, uh, to D. Dillinger? And they said, yes, we are. <laughs> we since have become very good friends. I preached his funeral, um, and she's very good friends of mine at 80-some years old now. The point being that names carry something. And that's unfair for me to say, well, just because you're related doesn't make you rotten as well. And in fact, they're not rotten. They're wonderful people. But the point is, is when you have a certain last name or when people hear you, I've always wondered, uh, what, you know, and, and a lot of times it's not until your life on earth is over that people really talk about your legacy and your life uh, and your eulogy. And then you, you're not there to defend yourself. <laughs> I guess what they're saying. But generally we say nice things at those services, do we not? And the fact is, is it's hard to come by a good reputation, but it's easy to lose by our mistakes, by our poor choices. Let me suggest to you, thirdly, we sometimes need to repair innocent bystanders and do our very best because sometimes there is reproach that is brought upon the church. I remember hearing that phrase from a very early age that when someone would come forward, oftentimes it wasn't because they had sinned privately. That's certainly appropriate if you want prayers of the brethren, but it's because the reputation of the church of the brothers and sisters have potentially been harmed, Uh, perhaps if it was a public sin, uh, perhaps if it was a public outburst, uh, perhaps if the result of uh, your choices are going to uh, be uh, profound in the next few months because of uh, legal action or whatever the case may be. We must remember that as people judge the church, they will also judge Jesus Christ. We could go back and read Ephesians 5, particularly the last half of Ephesians 5, and people will unfairly judge Northfield Boulevard based on the choice of one individual which is why one individual, that's all of us combined and then individually, we have to make sure that we are doing what is right at all times. We're not perfect. We're going to make those mistakes, which is why we have to recognize it and take responsibility and show remorse and do our very best to repair. 
But when a brother or sister comes forward and says, I I have done wrong and I'm sorry for what I've done, we now have the ability to go to someone else who says, hey, I heard what happened uh, that Sister Smith was uh, uh, inappropriate in the way that she talked or whatever. Well, Sister Smith has already taken care of that. So we have nothing to talk about anymore because we are a church that recognizes, that takes responsibility, shows remorse, and then does our very best to repair. And sometimes repairing is difficult, but it's important for us to do because it brings us to this fourth aspect, and that is repairing our relationship with God. Taking sin seriously means we need to understand the premise of Isaiah chapter 59. Those verses are familiar to most of you, and I appreciate our brother reading from those verses. And Jeremy did a good job of taking us back to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 3. But it says, Behold your iniquity, your sin has separated you from God. When you and I sin, I need to repair my relationship first and foremost with the Lord himself. And of course, others as well if necessary. Which brings me to the fifth, and I had to get creative with my R's on this one, and that is uh, there needs to be no repeating. You see, what we sometimes do is we say, dear Lord, I'm sorry for what I did, I repent. And then a day later, we go back and we commit the sin. I'm sorry, Lord, I repent. And then a week later, we go back and we review it, and we do it again. Now, I know that I'm speaking to people that are spiritually mature, but I think all of us can understand where I'm going with this, that it is sometimes difficult to say, I repent, and say, I'm actually putting a stop to thinking this way, talking this way, going there, watching this, listening to this, engaging in this conversation, whatever the case may be, I'm going to stop it because I don't want to repeat it anymore. It is easy to, on one hand, say, I repent, and have the other hand behind your back with your fingers crossed. That's easy to do. But we can't do that. We've got to be cautious about that. Once we've sinned once, it becomes much easier to sin again. Once you involve yourself in gossip, once you involve yourself with taking the Lord's name in vain, once you surround yourself with people who are going to suggest that you drink or suggest that you use drugs, it's easier and easier and easier for those things to transpire. Remember, going back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12, remember the progression of sin. It started out with looking, then it went to inquiring, then it went to a physical action, then it went to lying, then it went to murder, then it went to covering up and lying on lying, all those things together. That's what happens when we allow just one sin to, to transpire. Note, if you would, typical crime today. In fact, there's a phrase for this. They call, call it gateway crimes or gateway drugs, for example. Little crimes that may only get you a night or two in jail or little things that may only cost you a $500 fine and you appear before the judge and then you're free to go. You commit those crimes and then it's easier to commit the crime that's a little bit more sophisticated and then that's more challenging to get out of. And that's what happens today. We as men and women of faith are to be spiritually minded and we must, here's another R, resolve to not continue making the same choices as before. In fact, I would argue the more spiritually minded a person is, the more likely he'll succeed in this. 
And once we set ourselves to really fully repent, we'll see an upward trajectory in our spiritual life. Doesn't mean that we're not going to sin again. I, I wish it were the case that you say, all right, preacher says, I'm going to repent and I'm never going to be tempted again. Well, that's not the way it works because Satan is seeking whom he may devour. And that's you and that's me. And we are up against a formidable opponent called the devil himself. And he is very good at what he does. He's not good, but he's good at what he does. He's talented. He knows what he's doing. And he has the ability to get to you and me and to harm us if we do not watch it. We need to be men and women who really and fully repent. I hope that this will be helpful to you. It's, it's sobering to me to think about the fact that I could say, I repent, please forgive me, amen, without really thinking about what I just said. I must take recognition, accept responsibility, show remorse, work to repair, and never repeat again, resolving to fully and completely repent. And there's an opportunity this morning that lays before us for you to fully repent, whether that be as a child of God, for you to say, you know what, I need to change my life. And if it's private, it can remain private. If you want to involve two or three brothers or sisters who can help you in your effort, pick out a couple of brothers or sisters that you trust that can be there to be your accountability partner to be there to help you and to pray with you and to study with you. Or if it's sin that has potentially brought reproach on this church and on the Lord's church in a general nature, we are asking for you to make that known so that all the bases are covered, so that it's clear and we recognize where the repair of repentance have been made. If you're not a child of God, and there are those this morning who have never been baptized to have your sins washed away, We'd love the opportunity to help you to not just repent, but to fully serve God by being baptized, having confessed Jesus as the Christ. Can we help you in any way? Let us know if we can while together we stand while we sing.